Chapter Four of In the Reign of Terror by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Raimundo. Chapter Four: The Clouds Gather. Occasionally and at considerable intervals, Harry received letters from his father. The latter said that there was great excitement in England over the events which had taken place in France, and that his mother was rendered extremely anxious by the news of the attacks upon chateaux and the state of tumult and lawlessness which prevailed. They thought he had better resign his situation and return home. Harry, in his replies, made light of the danger, and said that after having been treated so kindly it would be most ungrateful of him to break the engagement he had made for three years, and leave his friends at the present moment. Indeed, he, like all around him, was filled with the excitement of the time. In spite of the almost universal confusion and disorder, life went on quietly and calmly at the chateau. The establishment was greatly reduced for few of the tenants paid their rents but the absence of ceremonial brought the family closer together and the marquis and his wife agreed that they had never spent a happier time than the spring and summer of seventeen ninety one the news of the failure of the king's attempt at flight on the twentieth of june was a great shock to the marquis a king should never fly he said above all he should never make an abortive attempt at flight it is lamentable that he should be so ill-advised at the end of september the elections to the legislative assembly as it was now to be called resulted in the return of men even more extreme and violent than those whom they succeeded we must go to paris the marquis said one day towards the end of october the place for a french nobleman now is beside the king and that of his wife beside the queen the marquise said quietly i cannot say no the marquis replied i wish you could have stayed with the children but they need fear no trouble here Ernest is nearly seventeen, and may well begin, in my absence, to represent me. I think we can leave the chateau without anxiety, but even were it not so, it would still be our duty to go. There is another thing I want to speak to you about before we start, the Marquise said. Jeanne is no longer a child, although we still regard her as one. She is fifteen, and she is graver and more earnest than most girls of her age. It seems ridiculous to think of such a thing, but it is clear that she has made this English lad her hero. Do you not think it better that he should go? it would be unfortunate in the extreme that she should get to have any serious feelings for him i have noticed it too julie the marquis said and have smiled to myself to see how the girl listens gravely to all he says but i am not disposed to send him away in the first place he has done a great deal of good to the boys more even than i had hoped for ernest now thinks and speaks for himself his ideas are broader his views wider he was fitted before for the regime that has passed he is rapidly becoming fit to take his part in that which is to come in the next place, my dear, you must remember the times have changed. Mademoiselle Jeanne de Saint-Cour, daughter of a peer and noble of France, was infinitely removed from the son of an English doctor. But we seem to be approaching the end of all things, and although so far the law for the abolition of titles has been disregarded here, you must prepare yourself to find that in Paris you will be no longer addressed by your title, and I shall be Monsieur de Saint-Cour, or maybe they will object both to the deux and the saint, and I shall find myself plain Monsieur Car. "'Oh, Edouard!' the Marquise exclaimed aghast. "'I'm quite in earnest, my dear, I can assure you. "'You will say she is still the heiress of a portion of our estates, "'but who can say how long the estates will remain after the title is gone? "'Just as the gentlemen of the pave object to titles because they have none themselves, "'so being penniless they will object to property, "'and for aught I know may decree a general division of lands and goods.' "'Impossible, Edouard!' "'Not at all impossible, Julie. "'The beggars are on horseback, and they intend to ride.' Last week I called in for my bankers, all the cash at my disposal, about five thousand louis, and tomorrow Dutillet is going to start for Holland. He will hand it over to a banker there to forward to Dr. Sanwith, to whom I have written asking him to undertake the charge. 
If you will take my advice, you will forward at the same time all your jewellery. If things go wrong, it will keep us in our old age, and furnish a dough for our daughters. The jewels of the Saint-Claude have always been considered as equal to those of any family in France, and are certainly worth half a million francs even to sell. Keep a few small trinkets, and send all the others away. But I have wandered from my subject. Under these circumstances, I think it as well that we should not interfere in the matter you speak of. Personally, one could not wish for a better husband for one of our daughters than this young Englishman would make. His father is a gentleman, and so is he, and in such times as are coming, I should be glad to know that one of my girls had such a protector as he would make her. But this is, as you said at first, almost ridiculous. He is two years older than she is, but in some respects she is the elder. He regards her as a pretty child, and all his thoughts are given to his studies and his sports. He has something of the English barbarian left in him, and is absolutely indifferent to Jeanne's preference. A French lad at his age would be flattered. This English boy does not notice it, or if he notices it, regards it as an exhibition of gratitude, which he could well dispense with, for having saved her life. You can leave them with a tranquil heart, my dear. I will answer for it that never in his inmost heart has the idea of his ever making love to Jeanne occurred to this English lad. Lastly, I should be sorry for him to leave, because his good spirits and cheerfulness are invaluable at present. Ernest is apt to be gloomy and depressed, and cheerfulness is at a premium in France at present. Moreover, should there be any difficulty or danger while we are absent, I trust very much to that lad's good sense and courage. That incident of the dog showed how quick he is to plan, and how prompt to carry his plans into effect. It may seem absurd when there are several of our staunch and tried friends here to rely in any way on a lad, but I do so. Not, of course, as before our faithful friends, but as one whose aid is not to be despised. Thus it happened that on the same day that the Marquis started for Paris, Monsieur de Tillet set out from the chateau, taking with him some trunks and packages, which appeared but of little value, and were not likely to attract attention, but which contained a considerable sum of money, and the famous St. Claude jewels. Life at the chateau was dull after the departure of its heads. They had few visitors now, the most frequent among them being Victor de Guizon. The estates of the duke, his father, adjoined those of the Marquis, and between him and Marie a marriage had long before been arranged by their parents. For once the inclination of the young people agreed with the wishes of the elders, and they were warmly attached to each other. No formal betrothal, however, had as yet taken place, the troubles of the times having caused its postponement, although formally it had been understood that in the present autumn the marriage should be celebrated. The young count had at the assembly of the states-general been a prominent liberal, and had been one of those who had taken his seat with the third estate, and had voted for the abolition of the special privileges of the nobility, but the violence of the assembly had alarmed and disgusted him, and in the winter he had left Paris and returned to his father's estates. Ernest and Harry studied with the abbe, and fenced and rode as usual with Monsieur de Tillet after his return from Holland. The ever-darkening cloud weighed upon their spirits, and yet life at the chateau was pleasant. The absence of their parents and the general feeling of anxiety knit the rest of the family closer together. Much of the ceremonial observance which had, on his first arrival, surprised and amused Harry, was now laid aside. Marie, happy in the visits of her lover and at the prospect of her approaching marriage, did her best to make the house cheerful. Harry, who had not much liked her at first, now found her most pleasant and agreeable, and the younger girls walked in the grounds with their brothers and chatted when they were gathered in the evening just as Harry's sisters had done at home. Jean was, if the group broke up, generally Harry's companion. Ever since the affair of the mad dog she had treated him as her special friend, adopting all his opinions and falling in with any suggestion he might make with a readiness which caused Ernest one day to say laughingly to Harry, "'One would think, Harry, that you were Jean's elder brother, not I. She listens to you with a good deal more deference than she does to me.' The winter came and went. From time to time letters arrived from Paris, but the news was always in the same strain. 
things were going worse and worse the king was little more than a prisoner in the hands of the people of paris the violence of the assembly was ever on the increase the mob of paris were the real masters of the situation the greater part of the nobility had fled and any who appeared in the streets were liable to insult the feeling in the provinces kept pace with that in paris committees were formed in every town and village and virtually superseded the constituted authorities numbers of chateaux were burned and the peasants almost universally refused any longer to pay the dues to their seigneurs but at present none dreamt of personal danger the nobles who emigrated did so because they found the situation intolerable and hoped that an army would be shortly raised and set in motion by foreign powers to put down the movement which constituted a danger to kings nobles and property all over europe but as yet there was nothing to foreshadow the terrible events which were to take place or to indicate that a movement which began in the just demand of an oppressed people for justice and fair treatment would end in that people becoming a bloodthirsty rabble eager to destroy all who were above them in birth education or intellect therefore although the marquis de saint coff foresaw the possibility of confiscation of the property and abolition of all the privileges of the nobility he was under no uneasiness whatever as to the safety of his children his instructions were precise that if a small party of peasants attacked the chateau and it was evident that a successful resistance could be made monsieur de tillet should send word down to the mayor of dion and ask for help and should with the servants of the chateau defend it if it was attacked by a large mob no resistance was to be offered but he was to abandon it at once and journey to paris with the children but the time went on without disturbance in dijon as elsewhere a committee had been formed and had taken into its hands the entire control of the management of the town at its head was the son of the mayor monsieur le bas i do not understand that young fellow monsieur de tillet said one day on his return from dijon i do not like him he is ambitious and pushing he is the leader of the advanced party in dijon and is in communication with the most violent spirits in paris but i am bound to say that he appears most anxious to be of service to the family whenever i see him he assures me of his devotion to the marquis to-day mademoiselle marie he prayed me to assure you that you need feel no uneasiness for that he held the mob in his hand and would answer for it that no hostile movement should be made against the chateau and in fact i know for i have taken the precaution of buying the services of a man who is upon the committee that le bas has actually exerted himself to benefit us it has several times been urged by the most violent section that the mob should be incited to attack the chateau but he has each time successfully opposed the proposition he has declared that while no one is more hostile than himself to the privileges of the seigneury and while he would not only abolish the nobles as a class but confiscate their possessions he considers that in the case of the marquis nothing should be done until a decree to that effect is passed by the assembly until that time he argues the people should discriminate the chateaus of tyrants should be everywhere levelled to the ground but it would be unworthy of the people to take measures of vengeance against those who have not notably ground down those dependent upon them and that as the marquis has not pushed the privileges of his class to the utmost his chateau and property should be respected until the assembly pass a decree upon the subject i am sure we are much indebted to this monsieur le bas marie said he was here at the hunting party and seemed a worthy young man of his class of course he was out of place among us but for a man in his position he seemed tolerable yes monsieur de tillet agreed but in a somewhat doubtful tone of voice so far as assurances go there is nothing to be desired and he has as i said so far acted loyally up to them and yet somehow i do not like him it strikes me that he is playing a game although what that game is i cannot say at any rate i do not trust him he speaks smoothly but i think he has a double face and that he is cruel and treacherous that is not like you monsieur de tillet marie laughed you who generally have a good word for every one it seems to me that you are hard upon the young man who appears to be animated by excellent sentiments toward us spring came again 
Monsieur de Tillet learned that the mob of Dijon were becoming more and more violent, and that spies and watchmen had been told off to see that none of the family attempted to fly for the frontier. He therefore wrote to the Marquis, urging that it would be better that the family should move to Paris, where they would be in no danger. In reply he received a letter begging him to start as soon as the roads were fit for travel. About the same time Victor de Guizon received a summons from his father to join him in Paris. The messenger who brought the letter to Monsieur de Thiers brought one also for Marie from the Marquise, saying that the heads of both families were of opinion that the marriage must be still further postponed, as in the present state of affairs all private plans and interests must be put aside in view of the dangers that surrounded the king. Marie acquiesced in the decision, and bade her lover adieu calmly and bravely. "'They are quite right, Victor. I felt for some time that when France was on the verge of a precipice it was not the time for her nobles to be marrying. Noblesse oblige.' If we were two peasants, we might marry and be happy. As it is, we must wait, even though we know that waiting may never come to an end. I have a conviction, Victor, that our days of happiness are over, and that terrible things are about to happen. But nothing that can happen can separate us, Marie. Nothing but death, Victor, she said quietly. But surely, Marie, you take too gloomy a view. Death, of course, may separate all lovers. But there seems no reason that we should fear him now more than at other times. A few farmers-general, and others who have made themselves obnoxious to the mob have been killed. But what is that? There should at least be no hostility to our order. Many of the nobles have been foremost in demanding reforms. All have cheerfully resigned their privileges. There is no longer the slightest reason for hostility against us. My dear Victor, Marie said quietly, you do not ask a wild beast about to rent his prey what is the reason for his actions. I hope I may be wrong. But at least, dear, we shall see each other again before long, and whatever troubles may come, we'll share them. My mother in her letter yesterday said that she and the Marquis had determined that we should join them in Paris, for that although the disorders have abated somewhat, they are anxious at the thought of our being alone here, and in the present position of things they have no hope of being able to leave the king. She says my father is very indignant at the great emigration of the nobility that is going on. In the first place, he holds that they are deserting their post in the face of the enemy and in the second place, by their assemblage across the frontier, and their intrigues at foreign courts against France, they are causing the people to look with suspicion upon the whole class. "'You have kept your good news till the last, Marie,' Victor said. "'Here we have been saying good-bye, and it seems that we are going to meet again very shortly.' "'I have been bidding farewell,' Marie said, "'not to you, but to our dream of happiness. We shall meet soon, but I fear that will never return.' "'You are a veritable prophet of ill to-day, Marie,' Victor said with an attempt at gaiety. Some day, I hope, dear, that we shall smile together over your gloomy prognostication. I hope so, Victor. I pray God it may be so. A week later three carriages arrived from Paris to convey the family there, and upon the following day the whole party started, the girls, the gouvernante, the abbe, and some of the female servants occupying the carriages, Monsieur de Thiers, the boys, and several of the men riding beside them as an escort. They met with no interruption on the road, and arrived in Paris on the last day of April, 1792. Harry was glad at the change. The doings at Paris had been the subject of conversation and thought for nearly two years, and he had caught the excitement which pervaded France. He was tired of the somewhat monotonous life in the country, and had for some time been secretly longing to be at the centre of interest, and to see for himself the stirring events, of which little more than a feeble echo had reached them at the chateau. The change of life was great indeed. The Marquis had thrown himself into the thick of all that was going on, and his salon was crowded every evening with those of the nobility who still remained in Paris. But he was regarded as by no means a man of extreme views, and many of the leaders of the party of the Gironde, with whose names Harry was familiar, were also frequent visitors. Roland, Fergnon, Landuinet, Brissot, Gaudère, Lebrun, and Condorcet. 
Harry was struck with the variety of conversation that went on at these meetings. Many of the young nobles laughed and chatted with the ladies with as much gaiety as if the former state of things were continuing undisturbed, and an equal indifference to the public state of things was shown by many of the elders, who sat down and devoted themselves to cards. Others gathered apart in little groups and discussed gloomily and in low tones the events of the day, while others, who were more liberal in their views, gathered round the deputies of the Gironde, and joined in their talk upon the meetings of the assembly, and the measures which were necessary to consolidate the work of reform, and to restore peace and happiness to France. The Marquis moved from group to group, equally at home with all, chatting lightly with the courtiers, whispering gravely with the elders, or discussing with the tone of the man of the world the views and opinions of the deputies. Victor de Guizon was constantly at the house, and strove by his cheerfulness and gaiety to dissipate the shade of melancholy which still hung over Marie. Towards the end of July, the Marquis de Saint-Caux and the little body of royalists who still remained faithful to the king became more and more anxious. The position of the royal family was now most precarious. Most of the troops in Paris had been sent to the frontier, and those left behind were disorganized and ready to join the mob. Two out of three Swiss battalions had been sent away, and but one remained at the Tuileries. Of the National Guard, only the battalion of Fee St. Thomas and part of the battalion of the Saint-Père could be trusted to defend the king. The rest were opposed to him, and would certainly join the populace. On the 14th of July, a large number of National Guards from the provinces had arrived in Paris, and the battalion from Marseilles, the most violent of all, had, immediately that it arrived in the city, come into collision with one of the loyal battalions. The royalists were wholly without organization, their sole aim being to defend the king should he be in danger, and if necessary, to die by his side. On the evening before the 10th of August, the tocsin was heard to sound and the drums to beat to arms. All day there had been sinister rumors circulating, but the king had sent privately to his friends that the danger was not imminent and that he had no need of them. However, as soon as the alarm sounded, the Marquis snatched up a sword and prepared to start for the palace. He embraced his wife, who was calm but very pale, and his children. Ernest asked to be allowed to go with him, but the Marquis said, No, my son, my life is the king's, but yours at present is due to your mother and sisters. It was twenty-four hours before he returned. His clothes were torn, his head was bound up, and one of his arms disabled. The Marquis gave a cry of delight as he entered. No one had slept since he left, for every hour fresh rumors of fighting had arrived, and the sound of cannon and musketry had been heard in the early part of the day. It is all over, wife, he said. We have done our best, but the king will do nothing. We cannot say we have lost the battle, for we have never tried to win it, but it would be the same thing in the long run. Before hearing what had passed, the Marquise insisted upon her husband taking refreshment and having his wounds bound up and attended to. When he had finished his meal, the Marquis began. We had a good deal of difficulty in getting into the Tuileries, for the National Guard tried to prevent our passing. However, we most of us got through, and we found that there were about a hundred assembled, almost all men of family. The Marshal de Mailly led us into the king's apartment. Sire, he said, here are your faithful nobles, eager to replace your majesty on the throne of your ancestors. The National Guard in the palace withdrew at once, leaving us alone with the Swiss. We formed in the courtyard, and the king, with his hat in his hand, walked down our ranks and those of the Swiss. He seemed without fear, but he did not speak a word, and did nothing to encourage us. Several of our party, in trying to make their way to the palace, had been murdered, and the mob cut off their heads and put them on pikes, and these were paraded in the streets within sight of the windows. Roderer, the procureur-general of the Department of Paris, came to the king and pressed him to leave the Tuileries. "'There are not five minutes to lose, sire,' he said. "'There is no safety for your majesty but in the National Assembly.' The queen resisted. 
but upon Roderer saying that an enormous crowd with cannon were coming, and that delay would endanger the lives of the whole of the royal family, he went. But he thought of us, and asked what was to become of us. Roderer said that, as we were not in uniform, by leaving our swords behind us we could pass through the crowd without being recognized. The king moved on, followed by the queen, Madame Elizabeth, and the children. The crowd, close and menacing, lined the passage, and the little procession made their way with difficulty to the assembly. We remained in the palace, and every moment the throng around became more and more numerous. The cannon they brought were turned against us. The first door was burst open. The Swiss did not fire. The populace poured in and mixed with us and the soldiers. Someone fired a gun. Whether it was one of the Swiss or one of the mob I know not, but the fight began. The Swiss in good order marched down the staircase, drove out the mob, seized the cannon the Marseille had brought, and turning them upon their assailants opened fire. The mob fled in terror, and I believe that one battalion would have conquered all the scum of Paris, had not the king, at the sound of the first shot, sent word to the Swiss to cease firing. They obeyed, and although the mob kept firing upon them from the windows, the great part of them marched calm, and without returning a shot, to the assembly, where, at the order of the king, they laid down their arms and were shut up in the church of the Foyant. A portion of the Swiss had remained on guard in the Tuileries when the main body marched away. The instant the palace was undefended, the mob burst in. Every Swiss was murdered, as well as many of the servants of the queen. The mob sacked the palace and set it on fire. When the Swiss left, we had one by one made our way out by a back entrance. But most of us were recognized by the mob and were literally cut to pieces. I rushed into a house when assaulted, and, slamming the door behind me, made my way out by the back and so escaped them, getting off with only these two wounds. Then I hurried to a house of a friend, whom I had seen murdered before my eyes, but his servants did not know of it, and they allowed me to remain there till dark. And you see, here I am. But what has happened at the assembly, and where is the king? The Marquise asked, after the first exclamation of horror at the tale they had heard. The king and his family are prisoners in the temple, the Marquis said. The commune has triumphed over the assembly, and a national convention is to be the supreme power. The king's functions are suspended. But as he has not ruled for the last three years, that will make little difference. A new ministry has been formed with Danton, Lebrun, and some of the Girondists. He and his family are handed over to the care of the commune, and their correspondence is to be intercepted. A revolutionary tribunal has been constituted, when, I suppose, the farce of trying men whose only crime is loyalty to the king is to be carried out. We must be prepared, my love, to face the worst. Escape is now impossible, and, indeed, so long as the king and queen are alive, I would not quit Paris, but we must prepare for sending the children away if possible. End of chapter 4 Recording by Jen Raimundo